This is Marco Reus. This is Shinji Kagawa. This is Nuri Shahin. Hello, this is Jaden Sancho. And you're listening to the Yellow Wall podcast. Hello and welcome to episode 327 of the Yellow Wall Pod. I'm your host, Stefan Butzko, and today we will talk about Dortmund's 6-1 shellacking of SC Paderborn. We will preview Saturday's evening game against Hertha Berlin. And Felix Haselsteiner from the Süddeutsche Zeitung joins us to shed some light on FC Salzburg's Jesse Marsch, the latest coach who has been linked to Dortmund and to succeed Lucien Favre, potentially... For all that and more, joins me Matthias Zuck. Hello, Matthias. How are you doing? Schmelle, schmelle. <laughs> I'm doing well, Stefan. How are you doing? Well, I'm doing excellent because this episode is sponsored by the Borussia Dortmund Fan Club London and by Jordan Hunt, who pledged $10 to our Patreon in celebration of Marcel Schmelzer's first league goal since 2013 against FC Nürnberg. And uh, to celebrate that, I have a little song clip. <laughs> so if you want to sponsor an episode, go to patreon.com slash the yellow wall for more information. And uh, Matthias, it's time to dive right in. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> so this is going to be played like eight, eight more times. Uh, probably, but no, uh, yeah, it was a 6-1 win. Um, I think we all got our predictions wrong, as uh, Brook BVB noted, since, uh, you know, Dortmund scored six instead of four. Uh, I think I scored, I, I was the closest with a four nothing margin. Uh, I think you had a three-goal margin, Matthias, so uh, explain yourself. I I was right. I would have been right if Marcel Schmelzer hadn't come on and bestowed his gloriousness to this match and ruined my scoreline prediction. Damn it! I I I even <laughs> I even had the tweet ready. Hey Stefan, I got a scoreline prediction right, and then I had to delete it. For the right reasons, which is always, always nice. But uh, no, I mean, we got it wrong. But if you're going to get it wrong, you may as well get it wrong like that. And uh, yeah, so happy for Masa Schmelzer. Everyone was happy for him. Uh, Mats Hummels was happy for him. Uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, Royce probably was freaking out. And Favre and all of us, of course. And, and just the look on Masa Schmelzer's face was priceless so um really good and it it made me even forget some of the bad from this match for yeah. a moment yeah for, for a moment but uh, not for too long because uh, very shortly after the game i reminded you that uh, you had a little rant coming up already scheduled by the podcast host but uh, you uh, gladly obliged so we'll hear from that later but uh, matthias maybe talk a little bit about the first half, which was uh, pretty darn uneventful, and uh, you know, in in German we would say Steine kloppen, and I think Lucifer said it after the news uh, after the game at the news conference that basically the first half was all about tiring out good old Paderborn. But uh, as I would note, the uh, big 
positive is that Dortmund were not 3 nothing down by the break. No, that's true. Uh, the negative is they should have been up 3 nothing by the break, or 2 nothing at least. I mean, there were two huge chances, uh, one just before halftime, where I still don't know how that w those weren't goals. And there were a few more in the second half. And um, I thought it really interesting. You don't you don't see an emotional reaction from Lucien Favre too often in press conferences. Uh, but afterwards in the press conference, some journalists made the statement of, well, given how atrociously bad the first half was from Dortmund, and that statement was read out and you could just see the flash of irritation and anger on Lucien Favre's face. And I have to agree with him. Dortmund didn't play horrible in the first half. Uh, Parabon played actually really, really well. They had a couple of chances, but I would say um, them missing the chances that they had was way more predictable than Dortmund missing the clear cut chances that they had. Um, but uh, Parabon did well. They played very Wolfsburg-esque in their 4-4-2 type setup and uh, ran a lot, tried really hard. Uh, you could, though, see the very low quality in the squad and that this is a different Dortmund side than from the 3 uh, all back in November in terms of confidence and, and just keep on going and keep on going and keep on going. And eventually, yeah, they just broke them down and Parabon just had nothing left and Dortmund still had plenty left. And even in the first half, you know, there were probably 10, 15 minutes where Parabon played pretty well and kept Dortmund kind of in, in the middle of the pitch. But for the most part, Dortmund just dominated and suffocated Parabon into their half. And and I always felt like it's, it's going to happen, but it may not be four goals. And I was right. It was not four goals. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I don't mean... Any disrespect, but uh, Paderborn, I think, overall were almost as bad as Schalke are. Um, not that bad, but uh, they, they weren't they weren't good. <laughs> Let's put it this way. Um, I mean, it was good for them as as well as they, uh, you know, the the Etappen Sieg or whatever you you call it, that they managed to go into the locker room with zero goals on the scoreboard. You know, you can. Mark this as a success, but if you're that far down on the table, and I think it's pretty hopeless uh, for them at this point, then uh, you even even if you play against Dortmund, you obviously need a win. And I think overall, it's very encouraging that uh, Dortmund went to Paderborn and just really hammered them because uh, Bayern Munich, I think, won there three to two or four to two, but uh, that game was more interesting than it probably should have been. So, um, yeah, you can slip up against Paderborn as Dortmund themselves have shown earlier this season. And so it was very good that uh, in the back of their minds, they probably had that 3-3 result. And obviously it also helps when you have a fast center back like Manuel Akanji, who, especially in the first five to 10 minutes, uh, had a couple of uh, sprint duels against Streli Mamba. Um, so, yeah, but he, he dealt with that very, very easily. And uh, I remember the... Uh, Three nothing uh, half half time score against Paderborn in the Hinrunde. Uh, Dortmund just got out pace. I think the uh, the back line, the back three there was Pischek, Hummels, and Weigel, and uh, none of them has any sort of pace. So um, that sort of uh, yeah was was the Achilles heel in that game. And uh, if you have Akanji, um, things tend to work out better if if you need pace in defense. So um, that was very positive. Obviously. Um, 
also very positive than how uh, Dortmund started or opened the scoring. Uh, I think it was Emre Can who made a run behind Paderborn's backline, which is rare, but it happened. And uh, yeah, Zingales spilled the ball a little bit for Torgen Hazard to tap in, who was uh, playing in the wake of the injured Arling Haaland, who obviously uh, clattered into the referee during the Bayern game to add insult to injury. And yeah, add injury also because he has an injured knee now and may also miss for the Hertha game, but more about that later. So um, that I think was very positive. And then obviously... Um, We might as well talk about it now um, in the context of both Sancho and Hakimi because Sancho literally scored three minutes later uh, after a nice assist by Julian Brandt. And then obviously he, uh, I think he completely uh, pulled his shirt off and revealed uh, justice for George Floyd on, on his uh, undershirt. And uh, Achaf Hakimi later had a similar celebration. He just lifted his shirt so he didn't get a yellow booking. And uh, I think that was very important. And uh, for me personally, I always appreciate it when uh, players of Borussia Dortmund uh, are outspoken, opinionated and uh, make political statements, especially when it's for such an important case as it is now, which really, you know, has has global implications i think i mean there are protests not just in the united states but solidarity is being shown all over the world right now so um yeah it's it's very good to to see them uh do that and obviously uh police violence and uh, racial profiling in the united states is a big issue and uh you know, has has been an issue for basically forever, and especially uh, with the NFL and the whole Kaepernick thing. You uh, you know that uh, the United States had a lot of trouble in in dealing with these issues and and how to articulate them and how to protest against it and all that. So um, it's it's very positive to see that uh, uh, players from the Bundesliga. I mean, it was also Marcus Thuram and Wes McKinney to, who who made similar gestures. Um, Matthias. I'll I'll just invite you to to add to that. Yeah. Um, so again, I applaud uh, not just the players for doing it, but I also think it was the right decision from both FIFA as well as the DFB to basically say, you know, there's not going to be any um, action take disciplinary action taken against the players for making a statement like this. Um, I think. This isn't necessarily a political statement. You know, no one's making a, a statement for a political candidate or anything like this. This is a human statement uh, of solidarity and and wanting, you know, beyond just justice, but reform and people to have a dialogue and confront themselves with their own prejudices, no matter in which direction that goes. And as such, it can only be applauded. Naturally, there are plenty of people who then say things like athletes should just stick to sports. And uh, Stefan, I will warn you here, you can make a marker for it, whether you want to bleep it or put an expletive uh, <laughs> notation for this episode. But if that's your, if the opinion is that athletes should just stick to sports and shut up, then you can go fuck yourself. Um, because that is the just the dumbest thing in a democratic society that any moron can ever utter. What you're actually saying is, don't have an opinion if it's different from mine. And in this case, with the George Floyd 
um, let's call it protest or solidarity declaration, what you're also saying is you're a racist. So congratulations, you scumbag. Um, but beyond that, it's the same as if you would go to an accountant and say, don't have an opinion, just stick to the numbers. That's bullshit. Everyone is entitled to an opinion. Whether you agree with it or not is completely irrelevant. And they should be allowed to express that democratic right in whatever form or fashion that they choose to. And the way Jaden Sancho, Hakimi, and plenty of others did it is the right way to do it. Um, and should be applauded and is applauded. And everything that's happened since then, it's the same way. But again, people are entitled to express their opinions, whether you or I, Stefan, or anybody else agrees or disagrees with it. It is their right to do so. And to tell them to stay in their lane and just do their job, um, well, that's just stupid. I'm sorry. So uh, I applaud uh, Jaden Sancho, Weston McKinney, uh, Weston McKinney, who did the only good thing, Shaka has done in a long long time uh needless to say they screwed up yesterday big time bunch of pricks um and so um no i think it's great and i hope it continues and the interesting thing is even the dfb said that maybe there will be more latitude given in future for players to make to be allowed to make declarations like this without facing any form of punishment it was also great to see that um uh, Michael Zock in the press conference, uh, along with Lucien Favre, you know, said they're 100% behind Jane Sancho and Ashraf uh, Hakimi, and that they hope that they continue to do that and make those statements and make those opinions known. And Dortmund, I have to say, to their credit as well, like during the match and right after the match, they didn't stop. I mean, they immediately retweeted and tweeted the images with uh, hashtag you know, justice for George Floyd and uh, hashtag Black Lives Matter, all that kind of stuff. So the club made the right statement right away. I mean, they didn't even hesitate and and think if there's any backlash, because if there's backlash for it, well, honestly, Stefan, who needs racist fans anyway? Yeah, I don't. Uh, that's for sure. And I mean, we really have to acknowledge that uh, we, whether we live in the United States or in Germany, uh, and I think Germany in in for many people, this is considered not that racist, but I think that's quite wrong. It's it's still also an unjust society, and racial profiling by the police also happens in Germany and uh, in other European countries. So I don't think there's any place in the world that's that's completely non-racist. So uh, I think the uh, struggle against xenophobia is a struggle of everyone's lifetime basically because i don't think you any society will ever get 100 percent right so and i mean you can see how how Dortmund players really grapple with that obviously uh, even more so players of color you can see the uh, twitter feed of dan axel zagadou is just uh, seriously appalled by the police violence uh, which is clearly documented on videos that you can see on on twitter in, in so many ways and um Obviously, um, in in the United States, uh, we use that word freedom a lot. And obviously, in Germany, I, I like the term Freiheit as well. And I think, you know, to, to live free in many ways means to live a worry-free life. And if you have to worry about, you know, random gun violence or random attacks by, by the law enforcement, those who want to protect you, or I don't know, just, just people calling the police on you 
all that kind of stuff. Um, that's that's not what what uh, the essence of freedom is. And uh, if you always have to worry about something in the back of your head, that's that's just not freedom, as as I said. So um, we all have to make an effort to uh, yeah guarantee that every person in a democratic society or or every person in general can live freely and express themselves. So um, I think that's very important and uh, a very good step. I think Dortmund today tweeted a picture of uh, all Dortmund players taking a knee in a hard shape. Um, I, I think that's that's a good sign. I think symbolism is important in, in situations like that and just to, to show that you are, uh, uh, you know, aware of what is going on. And uh, I, I hope that helps. So, um, yeah, Matthias. I don't know how we're going to segue now into uh, any penalty calls. <laughs> uh, well, you know, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, uh, and in this case, also justice. <laughs> and obviously, this is a justice that doesn't matter as much as the other one, which is more societal and stuff like that. And and I agree with you. And, uh, you know, Dan Aksasagadu, uh, obviously horrified by it and struggling with it. Uh, you know, he comes off, obviously from a country in France that also has its massive issues when it comes to um, this type of stuff. Uh, and and so uh, it, it's something that touches all of us, uh, especially as Europe has become more multicultural in the last 20, 30 years, uh, that uh, we, we can't turn a blind eye to ever. Ever. So um, now as far as on the pitch justice, <laughs> so um, <laughs> Emre Can, of course, uh, see, here's the funny thing. So I was watching it. I saw him, you know, fly in for the block. It, I just see it as hitting him in the chest. And I take a sip of my coffee and my son asked me something. I turn over and all of a sudden I see Emre Can yelling at the ref. I'm like, wait, what's going on? And there's a penalty, and I and I I I, I asked my son if he would briefly leave the room <laughs> because I had to get something off my chest. Um, and the the fact that so what compounds this horrendously bad call from a horrendously bad day at the office for the referee uh, was the fact that obviously Dortmund did not get a penalty, even reviewed. Uh, from Jerome Boateng clearly extending his arm to block a shot that would have gone into the bottom of the net against with Bayern and Dortmund match. But no, Emre Can kept the arm as close to his body as he could while flying in to block it, and most of the ball hit his chest, his body, and it was more incidental. There was no movement towards or specifically targeting the ball with your arm, unlike what Jerome Boateng did. This was 100% never a penalty, and uh, Boateng was 100% a penalty. But the bigger issue for me is not even the call or no call. It's the that it didn't even get another glance in VAR from the referee. And Stefan, I would like you to explain to my emotional state as to how or why this did or did not happen. Uh, this is a whole conspiracy concocted by Bill Gates and George Soros. <laughs> no, I honestly, don't, I, I, I honestly don't know why uh, VAR is leaving Dortmund in a lurch yet again. I mean, if we look at the end result, it didn't matter, but for a, a funny 20 seconds or so, it felt like, oh no, we, we really don't need this. 
Um, no, but honestly, I, I think it's... Um, Domo fans have all right to be a bit outraged and, and miffed or whatever you want to call it by that because uh, it's really freaking annoying that uh, such a momentous call, a season-defining call, I think, in the Bayern game didn't get called and then, you know... The uh, I think Matthias Jöllenbeck was the video assistant referee in the Padak Born game. Brings out his big salt shaker and uh, screws off the lid so he can get the biggest, baddest grain of salt that's in his salt shaker and rub it directly into Dortmund's open wound. And uh, yeah, it's it's just appalling, and uh, the Bundesliga needs to do a much better job and uh, not so blatantly favor Bayern any freaking way they can. Jesus effing Christ! Oh, I it's it's uh, it's amazing. So I'm a proponent of VAR. I I have always been an outspoken proponent. But if this is what happens, why even have it? Because. This was a clear situation that needed a review, just like the Bayern match. And at least here there was a pause in the situation. Whereas with Bayern, it was like, nah, not even not even going to bother with looking at it. Because, and I know last, last episode, uh, you know, we said, oh, there's no conspiracy theory. We just, you know, that's all silliness. Well, um, <laughs> it sure it sure feels like uh, Juventus bought the title kind of a situation um, as a Serie A fan, but it, it it's it's so egregious. And the the beauty of it is, it's not even Dortmund fans that freaked out over this or exclusively. Every podcast, every YouTube show, they were all like, "Are you kidding me?" with this in those two situations because if there's one thing I've always said and I'm very harsh on referees always have been whether when I was playing coaching or as a fan or a commentator um but even if you're shitty at your job at least be it consistently and um you it, it it's just it it absolutely baffles me as how that can happen especially cuz VAR is supposed to be devoid of the emotion of the situation and apply a consistent rule usage across every match regardless of situation and i think we can all agree that that's not the case and they asked lucien favre again after the match they were like so uh do you understand the handball rule at all anymore and he's like nope <laughs> and uh, I think we can all agree with that big fat nope. Yeah, I, I, I think we can. So, yeah, also, I, I think we, we can move on from that subject because uh, all I have left at this point are swear words, and that's not going to help anyone. So uh, let's talk about the uh, final 10 minutes where, uh, among others, uh, Marcel Schmetzer and uh, Giovanni Reyna got subbed on. And uh, as we all know, Marcel Schmetzer grabbed an assist and a goal. <laughs> so, um, yeah, that uh, obviously was uh, pretty amazing. Um, but what also happened, and we've been asked to talk about him, is that uh, Mathieu Moret got his first couple of minutes on the football field, and I think he also grabbed an assist for uh, Jaden Sancho at the end in, in that counter-attack. Um, and obviously uh, he picked up the pre-assist for Marcel Schmelzer's goal 
And uh, so he had a lively little game in, in the couple minutes he had. Uh, your thoughts on that absolutely uh, <laughs> too small sample size of football we got from Matteo Morey? Well, it's good to know that he's alive, you know, um, he, he exists and Actually, I mean, can it's not kick a ball. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's kind of like with Balerdi when he started getting subbed on, it's like, oh, he's here. The, the Argentinian full international <laughs> gets to have a cameo for Dortmund. Uh, no, I mean, it's a, it's the right sign at the right time. It's good to see. Uh, to come on and, and get some time. Um, it's way too small of a sample size of the match that was done uh, against an opponent that was done and bad to really say much. I mean, at that point, it was a training match. Yeah, I could have uh, looked very good in these five minutes of garbage yeah. time. Yes, yes, Probably without a doubt. Yeah, I have. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, for me, it's a bigger deal for my, than uh, what Masa Schmetza did, just because he's, you know, I mean, if we go way back to when Löw basically said, he's never going to play with me, even though he was one of the better left backs in Germany uh, at the time, uh, and then just, you know, age catching up with him, form dipping more and more and then obviously the last arguably three years he's played little to no role uh, for Dortmund uh, to have those that situation even if it was garbage time against a garbage opponent that had just fallen to pieces it doesn't matter it's great for him it's so that means more to me than Moray coming on but it was nice to see that you know Favre didn't completely forget uh the barcelona player that came to dortmund yeah it's absolutely correct um you know with schmelzer was also kind of funny because uh i felt like you could see that he really wanted to score when he assisted for Achaf hakimi i think he expected more of a give and go type of play but hakimi scored it directly and uh, from the body language schmelzer wasn't like the arling Haaland assist celebration or whatever it was more like ugh I wanted the ball back and and to score it myself, but yeah, so it was good that he I th was it was it over Uwe Hünemeyer he scored <laughs> because in that whole celebration pile, one Paderborn defender was still laying on a Schmelzer while the uh, rest of the team was uh, too excited to celebrate with Schmelzer uh, then to make way for that poor guy. Yeah, I don't even remember. I was so caught up in the moment moment that yeah, I don't. I don't 100% remember. It was just cool. Uh, so for me, that's the, the depth of my analysis uh, when it comes to that. Yeah. No, we're going to segue into the Hertha match with this break track. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, that, that I think puts a lid on that 6-1 win. Um, Dortmund now still in second place and I think everyone else pretty much won too so the pressure keeps mounting and what we did not mention in the uh, Paderborn segment but well now is that Mats Hummels obviously finally got his fifth yellow card and I don't know if I've ever issued a correction from my Bayern preview where I uh, put everyone into a panic that uh, well, actually, in the in the game before the Bayern game, I think there was the Wolfsburg game that uh, Mats Hummels was on four yellow cards. That was wrong. He had four yellow cards in all competitions, and he had three in the Bundesliga. But uh, since then, he managed to add two more. That means he's now suspended for that Hertha game. 
And uh, Matthias, before anything else, does that mean Emre Can will play as a center back in in an attempt to replace Hummels? And I think uh, I'm I'm not giving away too much by saying that Dortmund have struggled in the past when they had to replace Hummels, like the Wolfsburg match. Well, to, to, yeah, and to quote Lucien Favre, I do not know. Um, you know, it's <laughs> it's you know, I mean, he was asked with with Hummels being out. Um, are you going to have to change your formation? He said, oh, we'll have to see. Well, Emre Can can play in central defense. Is he going to play in central defense? I don't know, but he can play there. He can play in midfield. I don't know. Like Lucien Favre is going to tell everybody, oh, this is the formation we're going to go with. Um, I think, uh, you know, it, it would be... It would be a poor choice to go away from this formation and go back to the 4-2-3-1 because then you're basically saying your center back pairing is Pishek and Akanji. And I yeah, I no. just <laughs> No, I I I love the two guys, but I just feel like the calming presence from Mats Hummels between them elevates their play significantly. I mean, there's no denying that Akanji got way better once they started playing the back three. Um, now, Emre Can is obviously not Mats Hummels. Nobody in the Bundesliga is. Um, he's definitely not as calm <laughs> under pressure as Mats Hummels, uh, but he's still very good, very capable. He's played those types of roles before. Um, I think given a full week of practice to focus on that and the tactical concepts behind it, especially with Hummels being there and being able to work with him, because it's not like Hummels is injured. So he'll be part of practice in those situations. I think that'll prepare Emre Can for that role better. And as such, my prediction would be Can in the middle of the three And then Witzel and Delaney ahead of him in that kind of double pivot. Or Delaney and Brandt. Uh, but, oh, sorry, uh, Witzel and Brandt. Even though Delaney's actually played really well uh, since coming back from the Corona break, if that's what we're calling it. So that that's what I believe will probably happen. And I think you need to against a resurgent Hertha side. I think a... Uh, 4-2-3-1 with Akanji and Pishek as your center back pairing is asking for yet another beautiful Bruno win. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I mean, uh, you know, we could have talked about the title race all we wanted, but uh, we always knew that this game was going to be an automatic loss against Bruno Labbadia, obviously. So, um, but I think you're right. Um, it's kind of sad that Mahmoud Dahoud picked up an injury and will now miss for the rest of the season. Because he just uh, found some groove. So I think we will, <laughs> and against Hertha of all teams, have a double pivot again of Delaney and Witzel. So I, I assume that this, go this is going to be um, yeah, a very industrious performance overall. Who, who knows, maybe they'll su surprise me. But um, if you have Chan in behind that sort of triangle and then you have Akanji and Pishik on, on the sides... Um, Yeah, I I don't know how how well Dortmund will do in their build-up play and uh, whether they will have a good positional play, especially if you go up against uh, I don't know Darida Grujic and Skielbret. Uh, that that sounds to me like um, yeah a very industrious and very scrappy afternoon at the uh, Westfalenstadion or rather evening since it's the top spiel. So yeah, I think up top we will see Torgen Hazard again uh, replacing Arling Haaland if he's not fit, and I think he won't be. 
Um, it's, I think it's it's like a game time decision, right? I haven't seen the press conference yet, but uh, you have. Um, yeah, he he got asked about it, and uh, basically no real comment to it. Uh, it's not decided yet, but I think I'd be surprised if Holland starts. Uh, I think he'll he may be on the bench, uh, but a start I wouldn't start him. I wouldn't risk him right now. You still have a number of matches ahead of you, and given how well. Uh, that Brandt, Sancho, um, Azard constantly rotating triangle worked uh, against an industrious Parabon side. I I think you could just stick with that. Yeah, I I think so too. Um, especially when you have Guerrero and Hakimi to assist from the from the wings, that should that should help. I mean, this game is is probably uh, I I may be wrong, but I feel like a lot of things will you know try to be forced through the middle. So um yeah it's it's also funny because um obviously the Hertha Berlin game um of the uh, Hinrunde is sort of is the the cornerstone for Lucien Favre's revamp this is when Dortmund switched to the back three obviously didn't finish the game with the back three because somebody got sent off I'm not entirely sure who it was then but um Dortmund had to close the game out with just 10 men and uh, it was sort of a scrappy really uh important win in the end but uh it's it's interesting to see how far Dortmund have come since that game since that I, I guess struggle is right in the Hinrunde and uh, how much better they are now and yeah if if it weren't for that from that down Bayern game they they almost would have maximum points in the in the Rückrunde I think the other loss of points was against Leverkusen so um yeah Dortmund pretty much performing at their best and um Matthias, I think it's also time to highlight, and I've had this statistic ready already uh, the last time, but I didn't think that Dortmund would score like eight or nine goals. But um, Dortmund are about to write history. I don't know if it will happen against Hertha Berlin or in the next game, but right now they have 80 goals scored. Last season, obviously, they scored 81 across uh, 34 match days. And... uh, the all-time record that Dortmund set in 2015-2016 under Thomas Tuchel, if I'm not mistaken, is 82 goals. And uh, I, I think with five games left, it's it's pretty fair to predict that Dortmund will reach that mark. So that will mean that uh, Lucien Favre will be the coach of Dortmund's best ever Bundesliga attack. I have to say Bundesliga attack because in 73... Dortmund scored uh, 93 goals in the Zweite Bundesliga Nord back then when they got uh, promoted again to the Bundesliga. So, uh, yeah, 93 goals then. I'm, may- maybe Dortmund can pip even that uh, if if they have a couple more blowouts. But um, for a coach where, you know, his, his lack of uh, attacking thought is often, I don't know, criticized and, and people frown upon Favre for being a too defensive minded coach or whatever. I think uh, it's it's time to really highlight that. And uh, in, in that context, maybe we can also just highlight how darn important Jaden Sancho is for Borussia Dortmund with uh, the amount of goals he has contributed. Almost almost half of that. I mean, it's, it's, just, it's just crazy. So uh, losing him... Uh, doesn't matter when will obviously a, a, a massive blow to Dortmund so uh, yeah 
Matthias, I don't know how you see it, but I, I think it's it's time to just highlight a little bit how attacking Dortmund are actually under Favre and how, how prolific they have been this season. Yeah, that's something that tends to get uh, quickly and easily swept under the rug by the haters, um, is that, you know, Favre likes a patient, methodical approach. It's not Vollgas, Fußball. It's not Klopp-style or Klopp-style when he was... At Dortmund, Klopp's style has changed at Liverpool. Um, he's a little more methodical now, uh, and they will see out matches. But the Favre approach is basically, there's this, it's kind of like this saying in German, uh, you know, that the constant drop of water will hollow out the rock. It's a very rough translation, but <laughs> that that's, that's kind of the Favre approach. And it works. And then when they lull the opponent to come out a little bit, because they're not a very high-pressing team most of the time. They'll do it situationally, but not for 90 minutes like Jürgen Klopp did, or even Thomas Tuchel. Thomas, under Thomas Tuchel, they pressed really high. Let's not even talk about Bosch's crazy high press. Uh, under Favre, it's, it's sitting a bit deeper, which creates the space for those players to be able to run into. And there is... Uh, well, okay, uh, Bayern is really the only other side that's as prolifically dangerous on the break like that as Dortmund. To me, Leipzig isn't really, because you're you're just talking about Timo Werner in that instance. Um, Gladbach-ish, kind of, but it's a different style. Um, it's really those two sides of Bayern and Dortmund when they're given space and they can counter that it's just, it's devastating every single time. And what Sancho does is what, uh, great players tend to do. I just finally finished, uh, the last dance. And, uh, to me, Michael Jordan is, was, and forever will be the greatest, uh, NBA player of all time. And what transformed him was when he realized he didn't have to take the last shot. I mean, they won two NBA final titles with him not taking the last shot. The fact that he has to be accounted for. Sancho is that player now that has to be accounted for. It's like in the NFL when they start double teaming uh, a, a player, uh, be it a tight end or a wide receiver, somebody's going to be open. And that's what Sancho is creating now as well. Um, and then when Haaland is on the pitch, they got to account for him. So you can't account for two players because that'll then leave Brandt completely open or Azad completely open. And that's the dynamism that he adds to the side, which makes it so prolific and so dangerous on the break. Yeah, I can only agree. Um, now, I think we can shift our focus a little bit on Hertha, uh, even though I'm not too well versed in uh, what's going on at the Hauptstadt uh, Club because uh, you know I don't really care that much but um they have been on a on a on a pretty good run uh, the last 5 games they have not lost um so or the last 6 games even so uh Hertha are doing rather well uh, have played themselves into ninth place have 38 points now and um I think right now uh, on the the most informed player they have is uh, is Matthias Cunha, so uh, he's probably going to play on the right wing and is obviously a very fast player. So some something Dortmund have to watch out for. But uh, you know, I think this is a game where uh, Labadia will obviously go for pace because when you play Dortmund, that's what you do. Uh, with uh, Dori Lukabakio, they have another player uh, that Dortmund know very well that has already scored on them. 
I think, against Tusseldorf in their 2-1 defeat last time. Dortmund were caught on the break. And obviously, uh, the veteran Vedat Ibizovic, who uh, I think is their second best goal scorer this season with uh, five goals. Luka Bakio has six and uh, Konya has now 5-2. Um, in his uh, seven games, he, he played for Hertha. So uh, watch out for the Brazilian, I think, who came from uh, Abi Leipzig, if I'm not mistaken. But uh, yeah, Boyata and Grujic are also players who I like. And I also like Vladimir Darida. Uh, it's it's just the rest of the team which I find bang average, but I think uh, the the investments that Hertha have made were okayish, and with that they have uh, yeah they have a capable team, obviously a team that can beat Dortmund, and uh, with uh, Christoph Piontek they also have a striker who can switch it off and at any given uh, switch it on at any given moment. Uh, But he, I feel like there's a parallel, not only because he's Polish to the good old Robert Lewandowski, because I feel like Piontek is the sort of player that has a lot of potential, but just can't show it in the games yet, really. It's more of a Trainingsweltmeister. So, um, yeah, we'll, we'll see how, how that goes. But, uh, this is a game where I'm not a hundred percent convinced Dortmund will easily walk away with three points, especially not, uh, if you're minus one Mats Hummels. So, um, Yeah, I'm I'm very cautious and very of this Hertha team, even though Dortmund have a very good home record against them. Uh, I don't know what your thoughts are on on Hertha Berlin, but um, I think they they have Im improved, which they should given their investment. But uh, also, just Bruno Labbadia, I think, is a bit underrated in the Bundesliga, isn't he? Oh, absolutely. The Bruno revolution is running, and we can't forget, he actually did a really, really good job at Wolfsburg last season. Uh, I think it was just, you know, Wolfsburg trying to be overly ambitious for the hot new commodity in Glasna, and then, you know, I, there was also just a bit of an issue with Labadia and, and Schmatke, but it seems Schmatke tends to rub coaches the wrong way. That's kind of his... MO throughout his career as a sporting director. Um, but, you know, I agree with you. Everything is there to make for a very intriguing, combative matchup. Mateusz Cunha on the right side facing uh, Guerrero and Akanji. I'm not so worried about Luka Bakio does worry me because we do know of Hakimi's uh, defensive positioning frailties at times. And if you expose Piszczek to that type of pace with no Mats Hummels, uh, it's a little bit of a concern. Uh, I think if Mats Hummels was playing, uh, then I would make Dortmund the very clear favorites, to be honest. With Mats Hummels out, it definitely levels the playing field a little bit more. I think Hertha's uh, defense is that bang average you talked about, and obviously on the goalkeeping side, it's below bang average, in my opinion. Um, so, But it's going to be... Uh, You know, Labadia and the way they're going to probably set up and play, they're going to make it very difficult for Dortmund. Uh, it's going to be laborious. It's going to be combative. It's going to be fouls. I mean, if it's red card Vedat in there, um, <laughs> then uh, who knows? I mean, I would try Emre Can against Vedat Ivicevic. Ah, oh, oh, that's going to be so much fun because if I'm Emre Can, I am in Vedat's ear all the time talking smack to him. Until he finally does what Red Card Vedat does and flip out and do something stupid and get sent off. 
I would absolutely do that. And I am not morally above those kind of games. Um, <laughs> and I think Emre Chan is that kind of player who loves that combative nature about it. Um, I forget... There was there was some kind of match where you know he also went toe to toe with another player and afterwards they basically high five because it was you know like ah you know good fight kind of a thing and gosh that's something that Dortmund needs in a match against Hata who have a few of those characters none more so than Vidatibizovic. Yeah, I I feel like Dortmund will concede the obligatory set piece goal in this game just because Hata traditionally are a very dominant team in the air and Dortmund traditionally are not. So just because of that, that's uh, that's an easy prediction to make. Um, even though, uh, you know, we've been talking about set piece goals a lot in the first half of the season on on this particular show, and I'm glad that we're not doing this uh, as often anymore. And Dortmund has fixed a very glaring issue, so that's very positive, I guess. Um, but yeah, may- maybe overall it's time for predictions now. So Matthias, go ahead. So I'm going to say Dublin are going to win. They're going to win 2-1. They're going to win it relatively late. It's going to be nervy, combative, and PFOB Twitter is going to lose its shit for about 89 minutes of it. <laughs> yeah, that's a very good prediction. I, I think Dublin are going to win this 3-2. I assume there's a little bit more drama. And Matthias, you know, it's a seven-point difference to Bayern and, and whatnot, but uh, I, I still have to ask... Um, if Leverkusen beat Bayern in the game before, will this add any sort of pressure for Dortmund? Do you think that can make them think things about thinking? Or do you think that's <laughs> not going to affect this Dortmund side at all, the result of the Bayern game, if they drop three points? Well, if Bayern lose and Dortmund win, okay, uh, Bayern have Frankfurt in the cup next, I believe, and then Gladbach if I remember correctly, um, and Dortmund don't. So obviously, and Gladbach are in a good vein of form. They looked fantastic on the weekend. Um, so given an extra match and playing another difficult opponent, if they lose to Leverkusen, which is absolutely, they could easily lose Two to one to Leverkusen. They could also beat Leverkusen eight nil, and neither one of those would surprise me. Um, but if they lose, then yes, there is still a chance of something happening. If they win, I just don't see them slipping up enough, uh, knowing that Dortmund also have to play Leipzig still and Hoffenheim <laughs> and and oh god, Hoffenheim. The ultimate bogey team since uh, Hamburg got relegated. Um, I just, uh, yeah, it, it hinges on Peter Bosch, ironically, in my opinion. Uh, if Bosch gets Leverkusen to beat Bayern, then I think the race is kind of back on, at least for a week or two. Uh, if they don't drop points or even i think even a draw i think it'll be hard after that yeah i i agree but uh either way title race or no title race it just would be very satisfying to see bayern lose for once again jesus christ so um yeah <laughs> uh, hansi flick is way too good of a coach he's way too i it just bothers me yeah it's just so annoying isn't it any anyway um speaking of coaches um We have been asked by at Colin underscore Barry to talk about Jesse Marsh. And uh, Colin, I came through for you. 
or rather Felix Haselsteiner did, because that's who I invited to the show to talk about a potential coach. And when we come back, Matthias and I will have our two cents. So without any further ado, here's my interview with Felix Haselsteiner. I'm now joined by Felix Haselsteiner, who is uh, an author for the Süddeutsche Zeitung. On Twitter, you can find him at FelixHA18. Welcome to the show, Felix. Hi, good to be here. Thank you. And uh, there's a proper reason why I've invited you here, and that is because your expertise lies within FC Salzburg, and the coach for that team right now is Jesse Marsh, who has been linked with Borussia Dortmund recently. Since my expertise on Jesse Marsh is very limited, I uh, thought I would invite you, Felix, here and uh, tell us a little bit about the coach. So what I do know is that uh, before he joined Salzburg, I think last season, he was the assistant manager of Ralf Rangnick at RB Leipzig. If you want to uh, talk a little bit about how he became the Salzburg coach, uh, the stage is yours. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's an obvious connection between Leipzig and Salzburg through <laughs> um, <laughs> Red Bull. Uh, but uh, yeah, I just I just think that um, he really... Um, took over this, this, I would say, Red Bull school in the way, you know, of finding a way to play very aggressive style football, very, um, very offensive, uh, offensive football with, with distressing tactics. And uh, I think that, you know, uh, Ralph Rangnick, um, who was who was working with him in, in Leipzig, was obviously looking for educating him a little on, on that style of football. And I think he did a very good job at that because um, when, when Jesse Marsh arrived at Salzburg, you know, also in the first weeks, you could, you could really sense that he was uh, understanding the, the, the style of the football that, that has been played there under Marco Rose, who's now uh, working at Gladbach. And uh, he in some way perfected it, um, but I'm sure we're going to talk about the players uh, that he had uh, or he was coaching. He was coaching at Salzburg in in the first half of the season, which I guess had a had a big impact. But no, just the, just the way that uh, Jesse March took took over the club uh, was very impressive in 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 the way that he was right there from the first day on, understanding how things are working in Salzburg, and uh, so you could you could sense that you know he would obviously uh, understood understood the football very early. Yeah, before we talk about the tactics. Um, I think from a Dortmund perspective, obviously, ever since Jurgen Klopp, a lot uh, of focus goes on the personality of the coach. And Lucien Favre is uh, a very timid guy in, in comparison mm -hmm. to that. Mm -hmm. How would you describe Jesse Marsh just as a character? And uh, do you think he and his personality would fit to Borussia Dortmund? Uh, yeah, I, I Totally, um, I totally think they would fit because um, what Marsh he does have this uh, very energetic way of, of coaching on the sideline. While if you talk to him in interviews and if you if you uh, look at him as, as you know from from a press conference and perspective, he's he's very calm there. He's uh, never losing his pace. He's very American there in a way that he's very polite. You know, uh, never never sort of going out of place or, or losing losing his temper in, in that situations or in those situations. But um, when he's on the sideline coaching his team, he's extremely passionate. So I can remember a few scenes, you know, where he, he got yellow cards for, for being 
a little too offensive uh, for um, for uh, towards the referee. But um, in general, he's always coaching his team, which I do appreciate for a coach. And I think that's a big, uh, you know, if you if you look at Jurgen Klopp, that's always been one of my critical points that he was not always focusing on his team, but he was always talking to the other coach and stuff. So Jesse Marsh is really focused on his team and uh, giving them a lot of energy, you know, talking, uh, also also going for, for um, and I think that's parallel to Jurgen Klopp going, uh, you know, Trying to to take the take the take the um, uh, audience into 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 her atmosphere and you know trying to create uh, uh, the the spark that the team needs in some situations and I think he does a very good job at that and he has a very passionate way of uh, instructing his team as well so you can sense that in a way that Salzburg is always very strong in the first ten minutes of each half I would say. And uh, that's, you know, clearly speaking for the coach in a way that he's he's getting he's he's talking to them in, in the right way. Jesse Marsh went viral when uh, an excerpt of his halftime speech at Liverpool in the Champions League got posted online. And, uh, you know, that was very energetic. And if I remember correctly, uh, Salzburg were three nothing down at the time. And then they came back almost made it 3-3 but in the end Liverpool still mm -hmm. won 4-3 but uh, yeah there was much made of that um, but obviously for us at the Yellow Wall Pod at the end it's always more important what happens on the football field rather than just on the sidelines and uh, I understand that you obviously want to have someone that can build a connection with the fans I think that's important in the modern football even if it's not the uh, the, the ultimate uh, quality you need to have as a coach so um you already mentioned his his pressing tactics um how exactly would you describe that you know uh in you have to make it you know you you can't compare to the, the Salzburg team in the first half of the season with the Salzburg team in the second half of the season because the first half he had uh Minamino and and Haaland uh you know as as those striker figures and and he sort of built it around them with uh, having One who was a good player, um, but definitely uh, he made him better. And uh, then you had Haaland and Minamino as the free strikers, and they were uh, they you know they were very aggressive in their pressing, and then they were very good in anticipating uh, longer balls that were played towards them. With Haaland of obviously being being the fixed point in the middle, and then uh, having having the other two guys on the sidelines uh, going going wide, and uh, Then you always had, uh, you know, he always had a, he had a clear uh, imagination of of being super aggressive, uh, especially in 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 the first games he played in the Champions League where he had this crazy uh, six to win uh, over over Genk, and uh, you know that was that was incredible. I mean, the, the football they were playing, you know, they were they were. They, they didn't give any space to the opposite team. And I think that was something that you could play with players like Haaland and Minamino, who were quick, uh, who had the pace uh, to, to be aggressive and then still go for, go for long, uh, long runs with the ball. And, uh, and who they had obviously had the fitness too. Uh, and the only thing that was an issue at the beginning and still is kind of an issue is that sometimes this aggressiveness, uh, you know, is, I wouldn't say stupid, um, but he could be, or 
he he should be a little smarter in in some phases of the game where the team needs to come back a little you know for 15 20 minutes uh make sure that they don't you know get another goal in and uh, uh get uh, get pressure from the other team and that was something that he clearly uh, saw in in the first half or in the first half of the season at Salzburg and then I think he did a better job at that um uh, you know connecting or or finding out about that and I honestly I asked him in a press conference once if if that's something that he wants to develop and he said yes sure that uh, you know uh, with every young team you start out being very aggressive and with a lot of pressing and then you need to find out when there are phases of the game where you need to retire a little bit and be be a little smarter yeah, I think it's very important. We uh, saw at Dortmund the same learning curve with Jurgen Klopp, definitely, um, yeah. that this team at some point just didn't know when to stop and in the end ran out of energy. And uh, I think, you know, sometimes you just need to have a little bit of that possession and, and ball retention just to, to catch exactly. a break. Um, so my question really is also because Andalusian Favre-Burs at Dortmund have perfected that, I guess, in, in a way uh, that they rarely have b before. Uh, maybe under Thomas Tuchel, but I wouldn't even say in the same sense that uh, they are a very possession-heavy team and that they have an excellent position on play right now. Um, if you play a high-octane pressing style, uh, sometimes uh, having the, the correct position on play in possession is a bit more difficult because uh, you're out of breath or... Uh, you are closer to your opponents than you want to be when you were not in possession and then you have to re reposition and to make uh, little adjustments. Um, how is it working for FC Salzburg so far? Um, you just said that sometimes they don't have stints of possession and then they are trying to be very direct. But obviously when you uh, coach Borussia Dortmund, I think uh, by now you can't just try to make an attack out of every ball possession right away. So... How do you think Jesse Marsh could adapt that to Borussia Dortmund? Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the, the situation between Salzburg and Dortmund is obviously a big difference. I mean, if uh, if you look at Salzburg, they have their league, uh, where they're clearly the, the dominant force and, and clearly the favorites in, in almost every game. And uh, therefore, they can play this style without risking too much because they can sort of, you know, count on the, the opposite team not having the quality to to uh, score enough goals to beat them. Uh, and then you have this European situations where Salzburg was a you know, small force where uh, they could take a lot of risk and they had nothing to lose. And I think that's the big difference at Dortmund, where in uh, Dortmund you see that they clearly, in my opinion, you know, I'm, I'm an outsider. I'm, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not following them on, on, a, on a daily basis like you guys do. But uh, from my perspective, they need to get into this mode where they can win titles again and therefore uh, I would say that it's a that's a little risky with with a brilliant coach like Jesse Marsh I I, I think that he might be able to adapt a you know a sort of more ball focused play, playing style um, that is in some way focusing on positional play um, but I still think that uh, it's risky in a way that um, the, the excellent positional play that uh, that Favre has brought in now, I wouldn't necessarily say that that would go away, but I think that Jesse Marsh would still go for a little more uh, offensive pressing at the beginning, and therefore it could turn out to be a little risky in terms of you know we want to win titles next year and not in three or four years time. Yeah, so um, 
the other stand, the other thing that you have to consider with with uh, Marsh and Dortmund is obviously Haaland, and they've both had a great connection with each other. Though I wouldn't say that you know Haaland is necessarily uh, a player that is extremely focused on the coach he's having. He's more focused on Mino Raiola and making sure that uh, you know he he has his career plan set out. I think so. I wouldn't necessarily think that just by taking in Marsh for the next three or four years, you can make sure that Haaland stays for the next three or four years. So I think that would be would be kind of an illusion. Yeah, I think you are hitting the nail absolutely on the head here because um, obviously taking a punt, let's say, on a, I think, 46-year-old coach um, who doesn't have that much experience would obviously be a risk for Dortmund and uh, really, um, yeah, say a lot about their long-term thinking. Um, obviously, Julian Nagelsmann was their desired coach, but that never worked out. He is at RB Leipzig now, and I think they have tried to get coaches that have the RB Leipzig or the Red Bull school of thought in them. I think that pattern is, is, is clearly there to see. Um, I mean, Peter Bosch was also a, a similar try, I guess, before they hired Lucien Favre. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, yeah, I, I think you're right. It is obviously a risk. Um, the, the question is obviously for Dortmund, uh, what their brand of football is supposed to be. And we at the Yellow Wallpot have put this into question a little bit because they went from Jürgen Klopp to Tuchel to Bosch to Favre. And, uh, there is not really that red fabric that you can, can find because they, they're all very different in their approach to the game. I think that is a good way to stop it unless you have one final thought on whether it would be a good fit for Dortmund overall. One final thought maybe that, uh, you know, Dortmund is still a club that is where it's quite important that you, uh, that you also look at the off-field performance and there I would say uh, uh, Jesse Marsh would be absolutely perfect. Yeah, so he would get along well with the emotional part of the fans. He would also get along well with the, with the media and with the sort of, you know, more uh, laid back and, and tactical focused part of the fan. So I think therefore he would be, he would be a real good candidate and he's not, you know, you wouldn't have a, sit a situation like that they had with Tuchel uh, and, and Ratzke, you know, I think they, they would get along quite well, but uh, you know, that's, that's something that um, has to be considered with every coach. So yeah, that would be my final thought. <laughs> You have left out the most important part, which is obviously pandering to the U.S. American market. But Sure, uh, <laughs> sure. <laughs> uh, I, I think we can leave it there. Thank you again, Felix, for coming on and uh, shedding some light on Jesse Marsh for us. You can find Felix at FelixHA18 on Twitter and read his very insightful work at Süddeutsche Zeitung. Again, Felix, thank you for coming on and back to the show. Thanks for having me. <laughs> All right, Matthias, that were 15 minutes with Felix Haselsteiner. Thanks again for coming on and lending the expertise. Um, but I also wanted to get your opinion. Uh, Felix obviously said that uh, there is some risk involved of uh, departing from Lucien Favre to bring on a coach that's not that experienced and... Uh, has a different playing style and philosophy. So um, after the, I think it was Sportbild who broke the news or whatever it was, or just made up a rumor, one of the two, um, 
that uh, Dortmund are putting an eye on uh, Jesse Marsh. Do you do you think this is a potentially good step for Dortmund in their long-term strategizing? Well, I think it's an intelligent thing to keep an eye on a younger coach that's coming through the Red Bull system, so to speak. Uh, you know, Marco Rose isn't bad. For a few years, Roger Schmidt wasn't bad. Um, Ralf Rangnick's not an idiot, uh, tactically speaking. I'm not, his, I'm not his biggest fan, but tactically <laughs> speaking, he is one of the, you know, grand poobas of the German coaching revolution. I think we have to completely acknowledge that. Um, and Jesse Marsh is also, you know, he, he was obviously at, at, Uh, New York Red Bulls and stuff like that. And the fact that he's willing to go and do the steps he's done in his development as a coach makes me also as an American really, really happy. I really deeply hope he never becomes U.S. men's national team coach because that's just like, why? Uh, have more ambition, please, Jesse, <laughs> than, than that uh, because ugh, the issues. But uh, he will, in my opinion, he's He's, well, it's not really hard, but he's probably the best American coach to have left MLS. Um, and um, I think if he continues in this vein of form, yes, he's helped by the fact that he's at Red Bull Salzburg, which just dominates the Austrian league. Um, so the, the wins can be a little bit misleading. But what I like about him, he's tactically astute. He's willing to learn. Listen to a great um, interview with him. I don't remember, it was a month or two ago on Extra Time Radio, uh, the MLS podcast, and uh, his willingness to try new things, learn things from the best people in the business when it comes to developing players and tactics and stuff like that. It fits the Dortmund uh, way of thinking. That being said, I think switching out Lucien Favre for Jesse Marsh after this season would be a mistake. Um, and I, Derek Ray actually tweeted something about Lucien Favre, you know, should he be replaced or not? And, and it's basically the consensus is no, because Lucien Favre has made this Dortmund side overperform. Because remember, after the, the year of the two Peters, uh, it sounds way too biblical. Um, he, you know, Dortmund is like, we're rebuilding. It could be a few seasons before we do anything special again. And they were right there with a the title challenge and way ahead of schedule. So I think people are forgetting that. It's like, oh, we're so close and totally overachieved last season under Lucien Favre uh, that the patience just goes away. And also it doesn't help that Favre is not Jürgen Klopp. Uh, he's not that firebrand guy. Uh, Jesse Marsh isn't really that either necessarily, but he's younger and he's different and he likes pressing football. So I guess that helps. Uh, so in my opinion... You do another season with Lucien Favre, unless for some reason uh, Pochettino or Ten Hag uh, says, sure, I'll come to Dortmund. But unless it's a guy like that, I just don't think uh, it would be smart business from Dortmund to dump a proven uh, coach like Lucien Favre for someone who's still a little bit unproven in Jesse Marsh. It's not like he's been uh, Red Bull Salzburg head coach for three or four seasons. I mean, uh, he replaced Marco Rose, who just recently came to Gladbach. So I think there, there just still needs to be a little bit more water flowing down that river before you make that decision. Yeah, I think I like the idea of a coach that has uh, 
pressing style. I think overall that brand obviously fits well to Borussia Dortmund and uh, we have talked a lot about the uh, philosophy that Dortmund should take and, and what it is. Um, but that being said, right now I'm actually very uh, satisfied with the refined football of Lucie Favre and the uh, balance that he has found. And obviously Dortmund have some exceptional players and that obviously helped Lucien Favre's success, but I also do think that uh, Dortmund, in a very, after a very long time, have finally achieved some defensive stability as well. Um, and I, I think that's that's worth something. And uh, I like consistency on the coaching positions. So um, while I like the like to entertain the thought of Jesse Marsh at the Dortmund sideline, and I can definitely see that in the future considering that Lucien Favre was already 62 years old and maybe doesn't want to do this job forever or just, you know, being Lucien Favre just says, yeah, I'm out, guys, goodbye. Um, yeah, I can live with that, but I think for now it, it would actually just be smart for Dortmund to to stick with Favre. Um, but we are obviously not the people who decide that. So, uh, yeah, but just stay away with Niko Kovac, please. Jesus Christ. Anyway, Matthias, uh, I think that's that's enough from us for now so uh, please tell our listeners how to get in touch with you and where to uh, you, uh, you can you can find me on twitter at matthiasuk awesome and you can find me at stefan butzko on twitter as well if you want to get in touch with all of us on twitter or facebook please use at yellow as well and if you want to read our written content go to theyellowwall.net where you can also find the various means to subscribe to our podcast and uh I'll ask listeners again to subscribe to our YouTube channel, uh, which is, I think, The Yellow Wall, or if you just hit Yellow Wall Pod into the search bar on YouTube, you will 100% find it. So please do that. Other means are iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon, and Google, and all that stuff. And obviously, you can also find our RSS feed on our website. And if you want to contribute financially, please go to patreon.com slash Wall. And that's all I have left to say. So as always, thank you for listening. And <laughs> goodbye.